Hello and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Father Michael, it is good to be with you again. Thank you for being here. Uh, please tell everyone where they can find us on social media and online. Yes, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, you can find us, of course, on our main hosting site, which is Anchor FM, uh, as well as on social media on the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook. Uh, do check us out there because uh, we uh, we share other related content. And thank you for those of you who send in your comments and your questions. We do read those. We do try to include them. And, of course, our Anchor FM site uh, shares out to other platforms. So we're also on Spotify, uh, I, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. So uh, do check all of those out and do share. And send us your thoughts and comments so we can keep this a dialogue rather than a monologue. Thank you. So last time we talked about not settling, uh, we not say, you know, settling for hell, that idea that, that sometimes we settle for the wrong thing. And toward the end of the episode, we, we gave a little preview to what we were going to talk about today. And that's love, but not just love in general, but an appropriate love that lacks in our current society. There's a dearth of understanding of how we view and understand love in the context of friendship, how we understand uh, love in general. You know, I, we've come to associate love with erotic sensuality and kind of settled for that. So that's where we are going to go today. Um, we will definitely be talking about friendship quite a bit. Father Michael and I over the years have, especially the, the past few weeks, come to understand just the significance and the importance of having friendships and how important genuine friendship is to life, for life. And um, let's start a conversation of how we can better understand friendship, how we can better understand love and start to redeem our Christian understanding of both and hopefully transform the culture. Yeah, and you know, I this is one of those this is one of those words that um it's so it's so misused. I, I think I think love is probably one of the most abused words uh in the English language because it gets used for things that have nothing to do with each other. Uh I love pizza, I love my dog, I love my mom, I love my kids, I love God. Those don't describe any of the same things. Uh, I am on the road a great deal between Nashville and Middletown, Ohio. There's no shortage of CD uh, establishments that uh, advertise the purchasing of love stuff, and it'll say that right because that's a that's a family friendly way to put to advertiser. Not, well, like that's not the same thing we're talking about when we say I love God, I love pizza, I love my mom, I love my like. There, there is a varying degree of not only types of love, but uh, appropriateness. Like like that last one has more to do with the objectification of human beings than anything approaching love, you know? So it's like, but in our modern American English, it all gets thrown together. And so like when I hear people say things like love is love, I'm like, you're clearly not taking this word seriously. Because it doesn't mean the same thing in all of these different places. It doesn't mean the same thing that we, we use it. And my biggest problem 
uh, my biggest problem when it gets to talking about it is that we have by we have overvalued one very exciting type of love and done so uh, and in doing so have devalued all the rest of the other types of love which which has the counter productive effect of undercutting the type of love that we want in the first place. Uh, so, I, I, and I, I won't expend it all here, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say like, so like, I think we touched on, if I'm remembering correctly, cause, and I, I, everyone has to remember, we, you know, we do, we, we post every two weeks, which means we record ahead of time. So I have to, I, I believe we touched on the fact that, uh, yes, on the one hand in Greek, there is more than one type of love. There's more than one word for love. Yes, also the dis the distances the the differences between those types of love has been overplayed uh, by a lot of theology, by that a lot of Christians, by a lot of our Orthodox theology as well. But it doesn't mean that no distinction exists. Like you don't want to swing the pendulum the other way and say they're always completely synonymous. No, they're not synonymous. No, they're they just have significant overlap. Like there's different words for a reason because you're communicating different things, but there's also overlap. So they're not so totally foreign to each other that they're talking about different things, a completely different species, but they're also not all the same thing, which is why you have four different words. So, I mean, it's storge is the love of family obligation. Eros is romantic love. Agape is love on principle. Philia is friendship love. That's that's the that's the breakdown everyone's familiar with. And there's been a lot of stuff going online debunking that and saying, well, there's not so. But yeah, there really are shades of difference. Um, so like in Greek, in modern Greek, like you can hear, uh, even though agapao, which is the word for agape, gets used for many things in modern Greek, you can hear someone say like to their kids or their grand grandkids, storgose. I love you with that family love. Um, and you'll conjugate eros, uh, erostica, I fell in love. You know, that's from eros. Um, so there's overlap. The, 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 and you say, my friend, there's overlap where, you know, you could, where someone could say to their wife, sagapo, which is I love you, but you could also say that to like your best friend, hey, sagapo para poli. You know, you could, and it's different. I love you very much, and it's, but there's again, if you want to, but if you want to be real specific, the vocabulary exists. So there's overlap. So they're not so distinct that they don't have. They're not so distinct that they don't have anything to do with each other. But there's not so much overlap that they're just synonyms, and that exists even in Spanish too. Because in Spanish, I can say, I can say to my wife. Uh, te amo, which is specifically I love you romantically, and I would say to a friend te quiero, which is the I love you um, appropriate for a friendship, a non-romantic friendship. But you would also use amar for your kids. Amo a mis hijos, I love my children. And it's using amar. You don't love them romantically. Or when you speak about God's love for humanity, you use amar. Cristo te ama, Christ loves you. So there's overlap. It's not that there's it's not that there's no distinction, but there's overlap. So we want to have the distinction without complete separation and divorce, and we have to recognize the overlap without blending into synonymity. And I think 
uh, and to get to uh, to uh, to get back to you because I monologued for way too long. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, but we have, as a culture, oversold um, the lustful side of eros as the legitimate type of love and as the fulfilling type of love. And of all of those types of love, it's the one you can get to the least often and the most dangerous, right? Comes with health problems and health concerns. It's the only one that's dangerous, by the way, really. I mean, we've oversold it as the only legitimate satisfying one. And then we remain, we wonder why we're unsatisfied when what we really do want actually only comes about if we've got a real balance from some of these other types of like a genuine, deep, abiding philia and friendship. So uh, I'll stop there because that's kind of introducing what we're going to be talking about. Sorry for the monologue, but like, let's get into it because I think we need to talk about like, why do we overvalue this one and devalue the others and, and how to balance that out? Sorry. Yeah. Eros is a funny word, you know, and I, and I think, I think that we've come to overvalue it to a certain degree because there's a mystery to it. it. It comes upon us suddenly. You you said that we fall in love. There, there's a violence and an un, unexpected nature to that word. It, it's it's a mysterious thing that that calls us out of ourselves. It, it doesn't allow us to remain in kind of selfish seclusion. It 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 kind of mysteriously brings us into a place where we have a desire for the other. That we that we want to participate in the life of the other, and I think that that is a very easy, a very a very easily misunderstood emotion, and a very easily manipulated emotion as well. Uh, Satan twisted that one early on in the history of man. We see it in the beginning of of Genesis before the flood, just how much that that drive to to be known and to know and that mysterious nature of love was abused and twisted um so i think that would be a good place to start and then not only understand a, a proper definition of, of eros but to, to move in that direction and how we can actually have proper eros for each other because i i can erotically love in a in a good sense a friend without it having to go to the sensual and sexual end of the spectrum. That would be very appropriate. Yeah. To make that. And yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's why we've got to really define what that means because uh, it, because if you take, if you take that statement, if you take that statement um, in like just the secular modern materialist context, it means something very different than what I know you're trying to communicate because we've we've gone over this. We're speaking more in a historical, philosophical sense. So what I would encourage our listeners to do is to uh, is to hear the definitions on their own terms. Like don't hear this the way you would hear it on TV or Netflix or wherever. This is we're, we're using these this language clinically uh, and philosophically. Uh, but I think the overselling of Eros, you kind of point to it. Um, comes from, I mean, let's just hit the low hanging fruit. Uh, the fact that it's fun. I mean, it's, it's very easy to lead people astray bread and circuses. It's fun. Like it's, and, and that, that is, 
with with a with a low work, low risk, high reward, instant gratification culture, um, anything that's fun becomes really important. So, I mean, let's be honest about that. And the and in this image of the person, we we see that eros exists within the divine reality within the Trinity. They have uh, a, a, an unending desire for the other to share in within the personality of the Trinity. They want to participate with each other at, at a very high level and in, its in, in all of its intensity. And if Satan can ruin that mark of the divine image within us, and remove it from its proper sphere, how much damage can he do to that embassy, right? As we've said before. So this is, this sort of, when if, if Satan can manipulate our understanding of love, and if he can manipulate such an indelible mark of the creator within us to have this spontaneous desire for another person, to have this mystery within ourselves, which we call love, and Satan can manipulate and damage and ruin it. You can then see within our society just how much damage he can do to mankind. And it and it also emanates from my personality. It's like that which arouses my love, that spontaneity of love for the other or the thing, is very near and dear to my personality because it speaks to me as me. And it becomes... I can associate it very dearly with my soul and and with what I am kind of by nature. Well, you know, so here's the thing, right? So part of the reason why depersonalizing and objectifying whoever else is involved in the relationship is such, is such a detriment to love and such a detriment to uh, anything. Because I mean, this is, this really is, I mean, what does Christ say that his his new commandments? I give you this new command: Agapate alilus, love one another as I have loved you. And so, I mean, there he's using agapi, right? So, I mean, again, there's overlap, significant overlap, but nonetheless. Um, but here's the thing: so if if I don't see if I don't see you as a person, if 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 you simply become uh, if you simply become a cog in the machine for uh, in the quest for my own gratification or my own desires, what you have is what you have is a very not just not just a not just an attacked embassy. What you, what you have is you have a humanity reduced to the materialistic level of spare parts. No one really matters. And once you've the, – the, the point I'm get driving at is once you've done that in one area, it bleeds over into the others. Well, you can't say that I objectify the other person romantically, but then I also have healthy family relationships, healthy friendships, healthy – like all the other places where love is needed, those are real healthy and this super dysfunctional. That doesn't work. Uh, it, it, that doesn't work. You 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 get to have right. you can have healthy love. It, it's got to be 
across the board. Now, that doesn't mean, right, that doesn't mean because we're all in a process of, of repentance and recovery and healing. So that doesn't mean that if you have any dysfunction on any of these levels, you know, all your relationships are out the window. But what it does mean is there's a spectrum and that that whole life of repentance and bringing your life back on track with Christ um, it's going to involve the whole, uh, the whole spectrum and ball of wax. So if you're telling me, for example, that you and your spouse, uh, are romantically disconnected. So that's, let's call let's say that you have a good, like we're, we're talking Eros and it's good, uh, proper Christian context. You know, you're, you've been married in the church. Okay, fine. Um, so you've got your romantic love. Fine. And man, that romantic side of your romantic love is going bad. Well, you know how you you know you know one of the big steps to fix that is you're going to need some genuine philia. You guys need to become friends again. You guys need to actually enjoy being around each other and actually enjoy spending time with each other and actually appreciate each other as human beings and actually like being in each other's presence. Oh, can't we just jump to the romance? So let me clarify. Do you want to be her friend? No, right? You got married. You didn't get married to be her buddy. You didn't get married to be a roommate, but. In order to have a real, genuine, abiding, romantic love, you've got to enjoy each other's company. You've got to enjoy each other as persons and people, and enjoy, uh, you know, enjoy being around each other. Otherwise, that other stuff is off the table. It really is. I mean, so that's the point I'm making. That's the point I'm making is that 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 there's no way to objectify and really solely one of the types of love on that great continuum and spectrum and keep the other ones intact. They once you have that imbalance, like we have in our culture, the other ones will suffer. The other ones will decay and become necrotic. So you'll start to see a very um, a very impoverished. Or, or twisted version of all of them once you start to go down that road. So that's my point, is that in order to have healthy love in any of the spheres, you got to have healthy love in the other ones. You, you, you know, so yeah, so you can't have like, okay, the Eros is going to be good, but the Philia is going to be terrible. Sorry, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, and yeah, and I think part of, so part of where what you're saying diverges from the way that most people think about this in our modern age, it has to do with your emphasis on the person. You're speaking about my personhood and saying, hey, as a person, when I do this, this comes from something deep within me. And because it's so personal to me, my sharing of uh, my, my, my personal space, uh, the, 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 food on, the food on my table, um, my trust and confidence, all these things that constitute um, – real and genuine closeness, um, all of that hinges on seeing each other as persons. I'm a person of value and I see you as a person of value. And what the way that we have, the way that we have objectified love, especially Eros in our culture causes the other person involved to no longer be a person. They're an object. They are, they are the mere, uh, means by which the desire is gratified, right? And, and so what you're saying really does hinge on seeing them, uh, both people involved being persons of value. Here I have something deep and intimate of myself of value to share with you, and you have someone of deep intimacy and value to me. Uh, I, I want you to take part in that, as opposed to 
I'm overcome with a desire that I must gratify. And unfortunately, modern English, those both get called love and they're not the same thing. And that's, that's the big problem. Actually jump into each other's, just jump into the romance. And it's like, well, no. One leads to the other, but I want to go back. I I think you're right. It, It isn't just a destruction of the, of the embassy, but it's actually the beginning perhaps of a movement toward non-being. Uh, it was St. Uh, Sophroni, and I think it was in his life as mine, that he said that, that we, uh, you know, it's, we, we move away from being toward non-being in order to avoid, how did he put it? To avoid, to avoid the seemingly pointless and unavoidable suffering of life. So if I see life as seemingly pointless and just want to avoid all the suffering, what better way is there for Satan to really grind that into my life than to help me misappropriate the mystery of God's love within me? To take, to take that which God put in me to draw him to himself and to create actual genuine and abiding love in the world and, and to move it from life-giving, creating love into and toward that motion toward non-being of materializing and objectifying others. That, that that's a powerful move well, man, you, on the devil's part. That's a powerful move. Yeah, and you've well, you've hit something real important. And to and to refresh, because we might have a few first time listeners, and I hope we do. Um, we, you know what we spoke we've spoken about in previous episodes is uh, one good way of understanding the, what makes us the image and likeness of God uh, is an embassy. We we are God's representatives. Uh, we are God's image and light. Where we are, he is present. We are his temples. I, it's not the qualities that you have. It's not your intellect. It's not your power of speech. It's not any of that stuff because those are all qualities that can come and go. Everyone that is human is simply the image and likeness of God because he has said so. And it's his presence and his authority out in the world. I mean, it's just a function of being human. It is the what is what it is the definition of what makes you human, and to live a life of Christian repentance is to be truly human. That is to say, to be truly the image and likeness of God. And what you, and you hit on something very important, and that is, uh, and that is that not not only is it not only is it an attack on that, but once we've objectified the other person, once we've reduced them to a means to our ends, and we've seen them as just. Uh, you know, just gratification for whatever our plans are. There's no way to reduce their humanity without also reducing our own. There's no way to reduce their their humanity and say, you just exist to serve my desires without also saying, I am nothing more than my desires. There's no way to do that. So I can't I can't attack your humanity without attacking my own. If I say, all right, hey, you just exist. Look, you exist as a labor force to make me money. You are a cog in the machine. I have just reduced myself to the machinist, but that's it. If you're just the cog in the machine, then I'm just the one that keeps the machine running. I'm not even the machine. And if it's if we're really here to just keep the machine running, then the machine has greater value than both of us. And then... I mean, you're, you're. It's not a quick. It's not a far jump 
to materialism to really say, well, neither one of us really matter. What is the image and likeness of God if we both exist as subordinate to the value of the machine we have to keep running? And that that brings us into like one of the great blasphemies at the Tower of Babel. Um, so if you read, as uh, I would encourage uh, our listeners to do, uh, there is – so in the, the Hebrew Midrash, which are the Midrash are these um, – they're expo- they're 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 stories. So, and, and you can find this in Orthodox Christian hymnography, uh, and, and even in our non-canonical literature, like you know the uh, the you know the uh, Protoevangelium of James and things. So there was there was this. The midrash is this genre of Hebrew literature where they take interesting and important passages in the Scripture, and then flesh it out. Like you're saying, okay, that seems important. What else do we know about that? Or what else could we say about that? Or what other lessons can be extrapolated? So you'll take, so like the story about Noah is like two paragraphs long, but the Midrash about Noah is like volumes. It's like two books, you know, where they're fleshing it out and saying, what is everything we can possibly tuss out of this? And you can see that. Uh, that same tradition in our hymnography. Like if you read Orthodox hymns, you know, like where they'll take, especially go to, go to the hymns around the Annunciation, where it talks about the angel Gabriel announcing to the Virgin that she will conceive and bear the Logos in the flesh. Well, you know, the, the hymns around it include a lot of fleshing out that's not in Luke's gospel. You know, it's like the angel stood and with his bodily voice was overcome with awe at how the how the uncontainable God should be contained in the womb of a young maiden. I mean, you know, all this stuff that it's not there, but in thinking through, and that's what Midrash and that's what hymnography is, in prayerfully thinking through, in prayerfully going through the text, like what else, you know, what do we see here within the scope that we can then take home in action? So anyway, uh, Lewis Ginsburg was a Jewish historian who survived World War II, and he uh, he he uh, wrote a book called Legends of the Jews, which was he collected all the midrash and all the Jewish folk tales that he grew up hearing in Eastern Europe. Uh, that was my first weird book. Uh, I you know I was reading I was reading uh, the Book of Enoch and and the Gospel of Thomas in the late 90s before there was an internet and you could find them like you had to find hard copies and know what you were looking for like i you know but it all started with this book you know and uh so yeah so like i, I was reading enoch and thomas before it was cool that's why I like when when dan brown came out, i was like the hidden gospel of thomas i'm like really i found it as a 16 year old and it wasn't hidden my priest told me to check it and and then well and then you know you'd see like you know the 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 gospel of peter and like like none of this apocrypha was hidden we just knew it wasn't scripture i mean it was but we didn't hide it anyway anyway i'm getting i'm getting far field the point is uh if you so on the on tower of babel you get to babel and you read it if you go to lewis ginsburg and you read in legends of the jews um where he talks about the tower of babel there's one really dehumanizing detail when they're like they were and he he paints it as they were they were setting war on heaven like as they went up they were firing arrows to see if they could hit things and they were only happy once the arrows like if they went up and then came down with angels blood on them then they knew they were getting close like it was an all-out blasphemous war in heaven that's the way he paints it 
But what's really interesting is he said that if a human being fell, no one worried because there were so many workers, they'd just replace him. But if a brick fell, people would get upset and mourn because it would take years to get another brick up. We didn't have enough bricks. We got plenty of people. So it was the height of materialism. The image and likeness of God meant nothing. Nothing. The human lives involved meant nothing but the bricks. That was important. And so like when you're looking at the, when you're looking, I mean, like it was, they would mourn the bricks, but not the people. And so for what we're talking about, I mean, look at that. I mean, look at, look at not, it's not just, it's, you know, it's, it's not hate, right? It's apathy. It is the absolute apathy towards the value of other human beings. They didn't hate them. They didn't care enough to hate them. To actually, to hate something, you've actually got to care about it. These other people didn't have enough value to even hate. I mean, that's, and when we don't properly understand love, that's where we go. It's not that we hate others. It's like they don't even have enough value to properly hate, much less love. I mean, that's worse. That's way worse. Which is an ex- like perfect opposition to Jesus when he said, the fulfillment of the law is in the keeping of these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And second to love your neighbor. Your neighbor as, as yourself. yourself. As and, yourself. And so if I don't love myself, what's going to happen to you? But what's but again, because the fathers are very the fathers are very strict when they talk about self-love, it's not a good thing. But we're, the way we're speaking about it is no, if you're looking at it to properly do that, it's properly look and say, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm the image and likeness of God. I'm his son and his servant and his priest. And you're putting that in its proper sphere. And when you're putting that in its proper sphere, I mean, you give it the value that he's given it. You know, and that's never at the expense of the other. But the os eafton, you know, the, uh, to love the neighbor os eafton. It's not just like 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 myself in the sense of it's not exhausted by like myself in the sense of oh I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated. There's a shade of that, but the os there is in the in the in the Greek of the New Testament is more like as if it were your very self. Love him as if it were your very self. Like you should not be able to see a difference. And that's why Jesus says to Paul, when he's still Saul and stops him on the Damascus Road, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't see a difference. He didn't say my church, my people, my brothers. No, me. He identified with the other. And that's that's the way that love is called to be, to identify with you. Right. So that that... Complete objectification is completely impossible in the Christian context, except that's exactly where we find ourselves in our American context, where where love is equivocated with objectifying something else or the object of my desiring. Like, I love pizza. Well, that's, that's ridiculous to say that you love pizza because what... What is it about pizza that that you love? What you know? I mean, let's rethink how we speak and how we think. But anyway, um, so if love is a spontaneous impulse to give of yourself, and this is how many of the ancient Greeks understood it, especially like Plato and Aristotle came to think of it as a, 
is that they're, that achieving and attaining unto the good, capital G, good, in order to get to the good, there had to be a willingness. Sorry, define, define, that, define that for our listeners because good is another one of those abused terms. So define what do you mean by good? What is good? Yeah, for, for the ancient Greek, the good any is really very much bound up in, in my willingness to give of myself on behalf of the state in particular and the other for the benefit of the whole. It's, it's very anti-individualistic. Let's just put it that way. It's the good, capital G, is a divine quality that, that we're called toward as human beings. Um, so using that, we, we should see that the Old Testament and even the Greeks had a, had a similar understanding of love in so far as where we're at right now with Eros is a call out of myself to spontaneously work toward the good of the other, to, to, to give of myself in, in the context of personality and in the context of relationship. And this might be a good place to, to start then talking about the importance of friendship in in modern America, and I mean the world, there we do not understand genuine friendship. I don't think we, and if we do understand it, we have so devalued it that it is just a gross resemblance of what the ancients understood it to be. If you if you go back and look uh, throughout history, the ancient cultures put an enormous value on friendship. And we see the friendship of David and Jonathan in the Old Testament and how much they loved each other. I mean, they go so far as to say they loved each other as their own soul. And and that in that love that there was a bond that was so deep that they even went so far as to consecrate it. Like when when Jonathan was dying, as as we read, when Jonathan was dying, he he gave his cloak to David. There was it, it was ceremonial in a way. It was like a creation, uh, like a physical making. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Father Michael? It's it's escaping me right now. But it's almost it, there's an oath, almost a covenant like oath, imbued within that giving of the cloak to David. That that sealed their friendship so deeply that it, that there's nothing that could break it, and we see and that. I think it's such an indictment of our modern. I was going to say it's just such an indictment of our modern culture that every time I hear that commented on, people want to people want to read sexual connotations into it. It's like, no, hey, guess what? There can be deep and abiding, intimate relationships with people that are gasp, not sexual. Every there, I think what you're getting at is every ancient culture throughout the world had uh, some version of blood brothers, some version of a ritual that made people family who were not genetically related to each other. Um, it, it, the church used to it was called Adelphopisis, the making of brothers. Uh, so it's so this idea that the that this tight, close, intimate bond could be ritually formed. That has its own value. Real yeah. quick, yeah. Um, when you go back and and look at the word phileo in its first 
first usages in, in Greek, it almost always related to family. So that it, it, it almost had started in that context of familial love, a, a, the love of a mother for a child, a child for his father or mother, my love for grandmother, uncle. And then it grew out from there. So it doesn't seem so far-fetched to, to have the idea of friendship making by choice two people family and then to seal that with blood like it originated like i i am the friend i love my mother in in this context in the ancient greek context i love her because we're related by blood but then you take that farther and you make your friend blood by sharing blood or some other oath or pact yeah and and what's what's interesting so this type of deep abiding friendship and this is why jesus is able to say no greater love has a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends, and I have called you friends. And that that to him is that's the penultimate, that's the big one. But the reason that that makes every other type of love work, and that rebalances all of the other types of love, and that's really the key to rebalancing. Uh, whether you're looking at romantic love or principled love or family love, the actual in, the actual the 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 actual proper use of friendship is in fact the key to rebalancing that because it's the only one that's completely freely given. Eros, you know, ro romantic love, romantic attraction, whatever, it just comes upon you. Like, I mean, it just hits you. Like, why, 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 you know, why are you attracted to, why am I attracted to my wife? Well, you just are, I just am, that's it, right? So it's like, it just comes upon you. You didn't, that's it. Um, what I do with that, I have a choice in what I do with it. Or storge, family. Well, family love, I mean, you're obligated by family love. So one is an impulse. I mean, it just comes upon you. You don't have it, you know, that's it. The other one is family love. You're obligated by that. Agape is love on principle. So you're obligated by the principle of the thing. But only, only filia, only friendship love is freely and truly given. It is just freely given. And that's what balances it out because it, it, it introduces when it's used to balance every other aspect of love on the spectrum. Uh, it introduces in there the message: "I'm here because I want to be here. I'm here because I value. It's not just because I find you attractive, and you know I'm compelled by my biochemistry. It's I also really enjoy you as a person and your company, and I value you as a as the image and likeness of God or family. It's not like look." Uh, it's like, I'm not just here because you're my cousin and I've got to help you unload the truck. It's like, no, I also involve, I, I am your cousin, but I really enjoy spending time with you. I'm here because I want to be here. That's, that's where the philia comes in. It sends that message of, I could be somewhere else, but I want to be here. And that's freely given. And that's what gives every other type of love value. Uh, and, and every ancient culture in the world had a very deep premium on that. Um, to as we've mentioned, they there were rituals for making people that level of brother, that level of friend. But also, you see in cultures, but also you see it in cultures that are more socially stratified and yet more socially cohesive. So I'm thinking primarily of like the Far East, and you know, in traditional, I don't know about modern Far Eastern culture, but traditionally speaking, you know, the farther east you go, men and women are really very separate. Like, you know, like non-family men and non-family women don't necessarily mix, at least traditionally speaking, right? And so what you would see is you would see these deep abiding friendships that don't, there's, 
that had no need to bleed into anything sexual, but deep abiding friendships between men, deep abiding friendships between the women to where they could really truly count on each other and, and be brothers and sisters to one another and give that support in exactly the same station of life and mentorship where they could go. I mean, look, you know, like when, it's funny when Jesus gives that example uh, in the gospels where he says, if a man has a friend who comes knocking on the door in the middle of the night saying, someone has come to visit me and I have nothing to offer them. You give me a couple of loaves of bread. In today's day and age, that's how you lose a friend. <laughs> that's how you would lose a friend doing that today. But in Jesus's day, where these cohesive social networks are, are, are so tight, it's thought that like, yeah, if I've brought you into my sphere of family intimacy and called you my friend, if you've got an emergency at 2 a.m., I'm absolutely the first person you should come to. Why wouldn't you come to me? Of course. Of course I'm here to help you. Why? We're not just buddies on Facebook. No, you're my brother. Like that, and and it's really interesting because the the more society, the societies that have the the sexual boundaries of men and women more delineated, like the men are over here, the women are over there, and these deep abiding friendships have more cohesive social structures, larger, more cohesive families across the board. And there's a greater love and and there's a greater network of support across the board. You can bang on that door at 2 a.m. and someone will answer and be glad you're here. I mean, it's and when I've when I've been abroad and spent time in traditional societies like that, there is a beauty and an intimacy between people across the board that we lack here. And the big difference is we have overvalued, uh, materialized, romanticized lust, the lust side of eroticism and devalued the freely given message of friendship philia that says i'm here because i want to be here i think that we should really then i think one conclusion that we can make here is that that we need to have a more sophisticated understanding of love that all three eros philia and agape need to operate in 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 within our understood sphere of what love is so I love my wife with Eros because I have a desire for my wife to, to see her happy, to participate in her and her person, and to have her share in my person who I am. But then also to anchor that with the choice to also have agape for her. Like, to, to, we need, I think that we could conclude that perhaps philia is kind of like the anchor between the anchor of the three types of love because it it keeps in check eros and it also allows for agape to be not rote systematic i have to do this love this type of love but i i have chosen to free freely love you and i desire your well-being so I'm going to also do all of these good and right things on your behalf as the Lord has laid out. I mean, it brings love into a full and abiding picture rather than just allowing it to slide into that devaluing and objectifying type of eros that our society so 
chases after this type of hedonism that we've fallen into. And it also keeps it from, you know, um, law, law keeping. It, it keeps it from this juridical kind of, I have to love you because God said. And it anchors it in a place where I want to freely share of myself and do all that is good and right for you and also participate in you by choice. Well, and, you know, I, and, and the, the other thing there is too, like once you've, once you have hobbled proper love and friendship and you're not just here because you want to be here, I, it's interesting. So in, in, in reducing love to things, like you don't love me unless you give me these things, unless you let me do these things, unless you make legal the things I want you to make legal. Like you, like as if, as if you were simply the sum total of the things. In doing that, um, we also – in doing that, we also have the – we've also gone down the very poor road of – in objectifying and turning everyone into sort of the sum total of parts. Like you don't love me unless you give me what I want. You make legal what I want. You do things on my terms. You don't love me. Well, I can love with you. You are not the sum total of all these parts. And what that, what, what's interesting is the more we have materialized love, the more we've turned it into this materialistic checklist, the more we have also, the more we've also uh, come up against we, the more we've also fallen into the idea of tolerance. And people will tell you that I often say tolerance is a word that I really hate. I really don't like the word tolerance. I dislike it. Uh, I dislike its use. And what's interesting is that the blurring of love within our society has also come with a with an over with a high valuing of tolerance. Love is love and tolerance are like hand in glove in today. And and but here's the thing. Love is not love because it's not all the same thing. And if you've got an unbalanced uh, dysfunctional type of love, the rest of them will be too. In one area the rest will be too. But here's the reason why I don't like tolerance. No one wants to be tolerated. If you've ever been tolerated, you know it's the most miserable thing. You don't tolerate something that you love, enjoy, or respect. Um, you tolerate a cold until you can get rid of it. You tolerate, uh, you know, you tolerate a broken leg until it's fixed. You tolerate a high rent until you're able to buy. You only tolerate something that you plan to get rid of until you, that you plan to be rid of until you're able to get rid of it. And then as soon as you are able to get rid of it, you do. It's not something you want there. If you're tolerating something, you don't want it there. You want to get rid of it. You will get rid of it as soon as you can. Why in the world would you ever want to be treated that way? Like really, to just be tolerated by another human being means that you are being put up with until they can get rid of you in one form or another. Either you leave, we make you leave, you die, whatever. We don't care. We just want you gone, right? If I have a cold, do I really care if it goes away on its own or if my mother-in-law's home remedy works? I just want the cold gone. Like that's what toleration is. You don't want to be tolerated. You want to be respected. 
You want to be loved. You want to be valued. The problem is those aren't the same things. And when I say to people like, well, that's what we mean. It's like, but it's not what you're saying. And when we look at how disposable human beings are becoming to one another, what is clear to me is that the actual value of the word tolerance is what's playing out. You're treating each other in that way, in that disposable, tolerating way, not with love and respect. So guess what? That might be what you mean. It's not what you're doing. And it's not what you're saying. So uh, I, I, but I think by, again, once we muddied the value uh, of love into just all being this sort of mishmash and getting what we want and, and gratifying whatever desire and urge we have, then it's really, and so then we've objectified the persons and made them cogs and they're no longer people. They're objects that either gratify or deny. Well, it's very easy to then just start tolerating them. And once we've tolerated them, it's also very easy to just cancel and dispose of the undesirable ones and say, hey, you're, you're a hater. You're a thisophobe. You're a thataphobe. Why? Once you're a thisophobe or a thataphobe or a hater, or in the language of the Bolsheviks, an enemy of the state, you're not a person anymore. You're just a thing that has to be gotten rid of, that we've tolerated long enough. And now it's time to be rid of you like that. That is the next step in that. And that's exactly what happens over and over. And that that's why we have cancel culture. That's why there's all uh, that, that it, it, but it starts by this imbalance of love where it's like, you're not really a person to me, your convenience. And just a brief aside, I, for a long time, I've called that sort of thinking uh, the intolerant tolerant because you can see right through it that that they're asking you to tolerate them until they can no longer tolerate you which is really unfortunate because it's it, it's it's forcing you to 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 love and think and do in a very specific way that isn't actually loving because if you know we've said this before but it's like if i really love you sometimes i'm going to say some hard things and you're going to say some hard things to me Sometimes I'm a jerk and you call me out. Thank God. But what kind of friend would you actually be? What, what do you if, mean by sometimes? I was trying to go easy on myself, bro. Anyway, Why? everybody, I'm always a Don't jerk. Lie. Lying Father to <laughs> so I'm always a jerk and Father Michael always calls me out on it. So that's usually the content of our, <laughs> our discussions. But I mean... If if I if he loves me and I love him, then sometimes always that is going to require him to draw me to repentance. Because would he really love me as he loves himself if he wasn't willing to also repent himself for calling me a jerk all the time? Um, but it, it's that sort of thing. As <laughs> as Christian brothers, we have to be of one mind, right? Like Christ, let them be one as we are one. And, and to be so unified in, in our fight together on the battlefield, moving toward Christ, towards the kingdom of love, toward the kingdom where we will be able to chase after God in deep and abiding love for all of eternity. What, what sort of Christian brothers and friends would we be on the battlefield if we weren't moving each other toward salvation and toward repentance, toward actual, genuine Christian life?
Yeah, and well, and again, what is that? What does that hinge on? Right? It, it really hinges on, you know, it hinges on seeing the other person as a person, as a as a genuine, as the image and likeness of God, as someone genuinely struggling in repentance in life, and you know, again, not merely a set of qualities or objects to either uh, facilitate or impede my gratification. It's like, no, you're like, no, this is, this is a human being. And, and, and what's interesting, what's interesting is that the fathers say that, um, you know, when we reach theosis, when we reach divinization, when we're, when we've, when we've drawn closer to Christ, we love all men the same. Like it's like, it's, and it's, it's, it has nothing to do with how convenient they are to us or whether it's reciprocated. It's like, you know, even, even, yeah, Actually, yeah. Jesus says, Jesus says the opposite is true. Yeah, if, love your. If you if you lend and receive in return, you've got nothing. It's when you lend and do not receive back, when you've done the good without any return whatsoever, without even the hope of return, that you've actually done right. The good. If yeah, if you do good to those who whom you expect to repay you, what value is that? It's like no, do good to those who hate you. Why? Because you're you. You know, you're loving. You're you're choosing to be loving. In it's not a matter of it's not a matter of do they have value. It's I'm sorry, it's not a matter of do they return it. It's like no, that's just the human value. Uh, today's epistle reading. I'm sorry, no, the epistle reading for Sunday is it's Titus, and it's one that I wish everybody on the internet would read more often. Uh, where he says he says Titus, my son, the saying is true. Avoid stupid controversies. As for a Factious, that is to say, argumentative. Re- admonish him once or twice, and if he continues, have nothing more to do with him. So here's the thing, right? There is a difference. So he right there, Saint Paul. So is Jesus? Are Jesus and Paul contradicting each other? Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. Jesus is saying, "Look, love, especially when there's no hope of return." And Paul is saying, "Yes, do that." And you're also going to have to navigate some difficult people in doing that. Here's how you can do that. Uh, here's how you can navigate these difficult personalities and still be loving and follow the command of Christ. At a certain point, you may have to step away and just say, I, "If I continue down this road with you, I'm going to be unchristian." So, love you, pray for you. I got to be over here. You go do that over there. Who knows? Maybe we reconverge down the road. Maybe we don't. But look at that. But Paul said, why? Because that's the only way to treat this person and still be loving to them and still fulfill the command of Christ where, look, man, if I keep in this conversation, it's if if I if I stay in this conversation, it's not going to be loving anymore. So, again, parameters and barriers are not antithetical to uh, to the love that Jesus is talking about, nor are we required to be pushovers. But what's the end goal? To the end goal is to love, to show love to this person and honor to them as the image and likeness of God, not because they deserve it, but just because that is what is. And that's it. So everybody out there, take this and internalize it. Uh, especially you um, you young guys out there that aren't married or whatever, young ladies that aren't married internalize this and and realize that you can you can have friends and, and really good friends that you love deeply and not have sex with them and be better for it but you can we can have we rethink rethink your friendships re, rethink how friendship works 
understand that deep and abiding friendships are awesome and that they're probably one of the most remarkable types of love that can be expressed uh, in the world and that it was a type of love that Jesus himself valued very much and that you see uh, duplicated throughout the scriptures, uh, whether it be from a teacher to his student or uh, between peers. Friendship is important and proper friendships are very important. So don't devalue them. Don't don't um, undervalue them either. Do you have anything to say, Father Michael? We're getting kind of close to the end of our time together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to wrap it up, I, you know, I think that there's a great deal of, you know, so... Sex has an intended end, and that is... To, that is also a divine reflection insofar as we are able to bring into the world more divine images. So if what you're doing sexually does not have at its end goal the glorification and the bringing of new images into the world, question why you're doing it and what you're doing. Addiction is a disease that thrives in isolation. Uh, we do know also, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but mental illness is heavily aggravated and exacerbated by isolation. Um, the I can't think of too many. I can't think of too many problems that are made better by isolation. And isolation is not the same thing as having time to yourself. You know, but isolation in the sense of you have no support network, you have no no friends, you have like the like the the man at the pool of Bethesda, you have no one to put you in the water. Like, hey, I why where have you been here for thirty years? I have no one to put me in. Like like that 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 kind of isolation where you're truly left alone um, in the uh, in your own chaos and, and darkness. It. it it's hellish and awful. And what's interesting is that has the more that we have fractured out lust and may and overvalued lust and and devalued like right because if you don't give people the kind of lust they want they'll 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 cut off their moms and dads and brothers and sisters. We've devalued family for the sake of lust. We've devalued marriage for the sake of lust. We've devalued friendship for the sake of lust. Um like even proper uh, even agape, right? Well, we 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 can't love God unless He tells us we can have the lust we want. I mean, it's it's we've so we've put it over every other type of love, and what one of the things that's come with that is we are more isolated and alone than any other society in history. Uh, we don't have those deep, abiding love and friendships, and we're seeing the support networks break down that used to be taken for granted because we no longer have trained people to love one another in this deep bosom friendship where they're able to say, um, you know, I want to be there. I want, you know, do, do you want to be there? You know, right? Like you want to lose a friend, text him one too many times, call him one too many. Is that a friend? Like, really? Like that's, that's a, that's what's, that's what's passed for a friend now. I mean, so what do you do when your life is in danger? When your world is falling apart, who can you talk to? No one. I mean, so again, we've created we've created a, an over we've created an an imbalance 
in what we valued and as 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 lust and that's i hate to say it but yeah actually a true bosom brotherhood sisterhood friendship is the remedy to where it's like you've got someone else that you know wants to be there and that that they know you want to be there and you don't have to be there and it's not because they're attracted to you or because they're obligated by family love or because it's the principle of the thing and they just got to be there. It's like, no, they want to be there. You know, they'll walk through hell with you to, to, for the overused. Uh, I know Lord of the Rings is everywhere, but it, it works because everyone's seen it. I mean, you know, you've got Sam and Frodo, right? Uh, I mean, it, what kind of... Yeah, what makes what makes Sam a real friend to Frodo, man? Because he's not going to leave him. He's going to walk. He's going to literally walk through hell with him. Are we going to make it to the giant volcano and drop the ring in? Or are we going to die along the way? Who knows? But if we get back, we'll have a great story to tell. Let's hit the road. Just because we can. Let's do it. Why do you want to go with me? Why do you want to go with me, Sam? Because I do. You're my friend. I like you. Let's go. Like I mean, that's it. No other type of love works that way. No other type of love is that free. And the only and the word for something freely given in in, in biblical Greek is is charity, is grace, charis. You know that's the only thing that's that's free. So Jesus says, "I've called you my friends." It's just that freely given. Um, and uh, I think we would do well to recapture that. There's, um, I think we all intuit this that the 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 love of a friend puts love into action. Because what is love if it's not acted upon? Frodo had eros for Sam and Sam for Frodo. I, I think that goes without saying. That, that there is something about the personality of the other that to be together. The willingness to, to bring that, that kind of catastrophic, mysterious nature of eros into appropriate, enfleshed, reality. Friendship had to be the motivating and appropriate vehicle for that. Because otherwise it doesn't work. And what I think, yeah, it's really kind of vain and empty, isn't it? So, well, but what what needs to be said is, and we, we didn't define this consistently well enough, but uh, the property of what makes, because there's also in our hymnography, there's also mention of the divine eros of God loving humanity with a divine Eros. And so we've spoken about Eros in terms of lust, just like our society does. In speaking of term of Eros in terms of the divine Eros and in terms of Sam and Frodo and in terms of proper friendship, you're talking about a love that draws you out of yourself. And that's, that's it's ecstatic in that sense. It draws you out of yourself towards the other. It's like, I'm going out of myself for you, out of my way and out of myself for you because I want to. Because I desire to be with you. I enjoy your company. I, I like you as a human being. And I think it's it's really sad that that has become twisted into only having a sexual connotation in our society. Because we should, as Christians, be going out of ourselves for the other a lot. That should be our mode of being a lot. Um, and it's most it's mostly not sexual. So when we say that Sam and Frodo had that ecstatic type of love that Tolkien's really clear. There's nothing romantic going on there, but these two love each other intimately and dearly. In fact, even, even Solomon, I'll stop with this. Even Solomon in the Proverbs says, there is a friend who clings closer than a brother. 
in the Proverbs, Solomon says there is a friend who clings closer than a brother. I mean, that's that's how that's supposed to work when we're not muddled down by sin. But, but that that's the impulsion toward the friendship, I think, in many ways, because like I just said, there's something catastrophic and mysterious about that proper eros. Because it, what else would have impelled Sam to go with Frodo to Mordor? There's a deep tragedy and catastrophe that happens between the two of them that makes them willing to take that march together. It's like it's the motor that drives the car. It impels me to, to go with you because I love you and I want to be with you and to share this struggle with you, to bear your burdens with you. But that, that can very easily be bastardized and misused and misunderstood and ruined if friendship, philia, and agape aren't also there with it to anchor it and to keep it in the right sphere and move it towards Christ-likeness. Yeah, I mean, and that's where that's where all of these different words. Because as we said, even though these words, uh, they, they we we can't be material. And say, oh, they're they're totally separate categories. They're not, but but they're not entirely synonymous. And that's where that's where they blend back in. This is where the overlap occurs. Because once I've allowed you into that family sphere, as sphere is my bosom friend, you know, storge does come into play, and I do have a certain amount of family obligation to you. Which means on a given day when you know. My closest friend may be a disagreeable human being on a given day for any variety of reasons. Poor sleep, uh, fights at home, problems at work, whatever. We both know that the bigger obligation to our relationship is bigger than like, all right, you were you were kind of disagreeable on said day. Or uh, I've got I've got like one friend that um, I, I we, we moved a lot so I've I don't have many lifelong friends because we moved all the time and I don't have a hometown or anything, but I do have one friend that we've been, uh, you know we've been we've been close close we've been like brother and sister since we were ten like we've been close friends since we were ten, and there have been between ten and forty, there have been like huge blocks of time where we've barely spoken you know, right where we barely spoken or like even like during high school, we went in really different directions and things like that. And then we reconnected after high school, stuff like that. But you know that because of that relationship, it's like, yeah, but there's something that outweighs those differences. And we know we can count on each other, you know, loop back in. That's, that's where all those other types of love, where the principle of agape, where the obligation of family, uh, all of those things come into and have value as a cohesive whole. That's where the synonymity of the words comes into play. Because when these things are in proper balance, yeah, they're going to flow back in together. And maybe you were a jerk today, or maybe I was a jerk today. But at the end of, but you know, when my head hits the pillow, I'm like, I know you still got my back. You know, I still got your back. None of uh, none of that's changed. So it, it, no, you weren't actually a jerk today. No, I wasn't actually a jerk today. That's, it's an example, but that's the thing, right? Is that, that's where all those other types of love come and say, yeah, we've got it in proper, flowing in proper order. Uh, and I really think this is a key to remedying some of that. But in any event, right. uh, I'll let you have the final, uh, why don't you get uh, some final thoughts into our folks and uh, we can call it a day. Yeah, so I, I think seeing these improper focus also allows us to see the deep mystery of love within the human person as a reflection of the divine. Because as St. John says that, 
God is love. And he's not just one type of these loves, nor can he be expressed perfectly by the three that we've just discussed for the last hour. But it gives us a, a small window into how the divine participates within itself at the level of the Trinity, the, between the three persons of the Trinity, and how we as human beings were created to love. That, that love is a mysterious force that is reflective of God within us. It's a part of the divine image, and it's a powerful part of the divine image. And as a powerful part of the divine image, it's something that Satan desperately wants to ruin, to mar, and to disfigure. Because if he can disfigure such a deep and mysterious part of our being, he can draw us into all sorts of various destructive sins, not only to ourselves, but to those around us. He can destroy community, he can destroy our person, and he can draw us toward all sorts of objectifications and towards non-being ultimately. So let's pray to God that he would teach us how to love more perfectly, that, that we in the Holy Spirit by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ would really learn to have genuine Christian love one for another, uh, for, even for our enemies, and, and to be more reflective of God's love so that we could be more perfect images of him here and now. Um, it's it's really important because in today's world we get fed all sorts of nonsense ideas. So uh, listen to this podcast more than once. Think about it. Ask us questions. Pass it along. Um, read as much as you can from the Orthodox Fathers and and in the Scriptures and appropriate commentators on and how to better understand love and what it and what it looks like in reality. Because love in your head isn't real. It has to be acted out. And it can be, and we have to act it out yeah. appropriately in, in our lives and show people, be examples of what it is to be genuine friends and how to genuinely live a Christian life. Uh, Father Michael, again, thank you. Absolutely. That drew the one towards the other and they wanted each other. They wanted to be with each other and they're willing to do whatever it took to share that thing. But it was because of philia, the willingness to, yeah, thank thank you and uh, appreciate it, and thank everyone for listening. And uh, do do remember, you know what what moves us closer to being faithful to the gospel and to the Orthodox faith. Um, that's the litmus test, not what I would prefer or you would prefer or society would prefer. You know, Jesus Christ is the standard, and that and and that. And if we go towards that faithfully, it's not just a good thing. It's the best thing. So it is the the good, the highest good, the good of goods, goodness itself, uh, as you were pointing out earlier. Thank you so much, Father Joseph and everyone else for tuning in. God bless you all, and we will see you next time. And do not forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram on, uh, on the Battlefield podcast, and then also again on Anchor FM. Uh, which is on the battlefield. Uh, leave comments on Facebook, uh, ask us questions, uh, tell us how we can get better or topics that you would like to hear. Also, please um, stay tuned as in the coming weeks, we are going to start the 
OTB shorts, the on the battlefield shorts, which will just be weekly installments, maybe five, 10 minutes of either Father Michael and I together, or either one of us individually um, is talking about various topics. And thank you all so much for the time that you invest in this podcast, for listening. Um, we pray for you. And we are grateful. And I think for we were you. talking about doing that over YouTube, right? Yeah, those will be available on Anchor. So as short little five minute things available with voice only, and then also on on streaming media or visual media like uh, YouTube and perhaps other platforms. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for that. It's going to be fun. It's been good. So we pray for you, pray for us, and may the Holy Spirit grant to us uh, the abiding love of the Holy Trinity and make us reflective of it in our lives. Amen. Mm -hmm.